0: This week, all across America, we celebrate 247 years since the signing of our nation's Declaration of Independence from Britain. On June 11th, 1776, John Hancock and the rest of the Continental Congress selected a committee of five men to draft this document. Three weeks later, Thomas Jefferson and a quartet alongside him presented it to the Congress. Two days of debate and edits ensued, and then every delegate signed the document, resigning from the kingdom of Britain and resolving to build their own. And this had been a decision that had been long in the making, because up to this point, skirmishes and battles had already been fought for the better part of the year, but the colonists had been trying to put off or delay the inevitable cessation from the kingdom of Britain. But ultimately... In the minds of every man there, this had to be done. There was 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, and they were essentially signing their own arrest and death warrants. Had the war gone differently, or had Cornwallis gained more control, every one of them would have been hanged for treason against King George. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Imagine they created a new country— Simply by writing it into existence. Obviously, they would have to fight for it. 6,800 soldiers would die for it. But it's remarkable to me that one could just switch kingdoms merely by declaring it and writing. I'm not... going to read that entire document to you this morning, but uh, that's for you to do on your own time. Maybe Tuesday would be a good time to gather your family and remind them of the sacrifice that others have paid for their freedom. But the Declaration of Independence, it essentially claimed that the colonists no longer recognized the leadership of King George, nor were they obligated to pay his taxes. They signed their independence of him and their shift to a new kingdom in blood. I'm so thankful for their sacrifice. We're the beneficiaries of their genius and determination. But for just a moment this morning, I want to tease out that idea of declaring one's independence in another way. We look at independence from the kingdom of England as a good thing, and I believe rightfully so. These men did what was right and necessary in order to provide a better future for their families but not all declarations of independence are good or noble. The book of Genesis opens with a couple of chapters that honestly, they are some of the most intriguing in all of God's Word to me. God creates the world and all that's in it, including this first couple named Adam and Eve. They're created in His image, meaning that they are sentient beings, they have free agency. And throughout a certain period of time, we have no clue how long from creation to the fall, the pair essentially signed their declaration of independence from God. They disobeyed his law. They, As I've said before, they chose a piece of fruit over a loving relationship with their creator. And when it's all said and done, they signed their own death warrants, with their desire to be like God. Thinking they could live independently from Him and His kingdom. Well, since that time, Paul in the New Testament, he says that every human being has been born into not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of man, where we each desire to rule and reign instead of God. We're talking about this phrase in the model prayer this morning, where it is simply, thy kingdom come. I recognize it's only a three-word sentence that probably doesn't need a whole lot of explanation, and I don't want to insult your intelligence here, but we need to kind of do a little bit of investigation, because this word kingdom, we're not very comfortable using the word kingdom today in our modern era we have branches of governments that do all that. We don't have kingdoms. I was asking the girls on our way to church this morning, what is a kingdom? And one of them rightly and profoundly, a lot smarter than I am, said, it's where a king is. And I'm, That's a good point, yeah. We don't like the idea of kingdom. That's because for the most part in the 21st century, kingdoms are a thing of the past. This the word that's used here throughout the Bible, it describes a group of people or a land region which is presided over by a king. In our democratic age of constitutions and bicameral and tricameral branches of governments, we bristle at the idea of living under a king, even though that has been the experience of the majority of mankind throughout millennia. Mark my words. I know I'm switching between the physical and the spiritual a lot here. Every human being who has ever walked the planet is living under one or two kingdoms, God's or man's. Now, as far as national kingdoms go in God's word, we essentially have six that are laid out, described in some manner, shape, or form. Obviously, these are localized to the issues and people of the Bible, and they don't include all the tribes, all the clans of the Old Testament. We're not going to talk about the Perizzites and Izites and all the other ites and stuff like that. Only these are the world powers. We're introduced to the first empire, a first kingdom of Egypt very early on in the Bible's pages, and quickly we find that this kingdom, this world power, is an oppressive one, oppressive one. At its first mention, we realize that they have enslaved God's people. After we're introduced to Egypt, as we go through the Old Testament quickly, Israel, they are introduced as a kingdom. And they rise to their golden age under men like David and Solomon. But just a few pages into the kingdom of Israel's story, we realize that this kingdom has one central flaw. They're kings. (laughs) They're not very good. They're arrogant, power-hungry, sinners who were ultimately deposed and dethroned. Scripture goes on to detail the Babylonian, the Persian, and Grecian empire. Each, they they ride the swelling tide of power in their time. we were introduced to names like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Cyrus. These names come to power. They amass these huge plots of land and a menagerie of people who they can put their thumb on top of and control. It's still just the kingdom of man. If you were to just take a holistic overview of these earthly kingdoms, it would prove that the best that man can do with its kingdoms is enslavement, sin, oppression, and tyranny. That's the best the kingdom of man can offer. But just as much as you see these earthly kingdoms in God's Word, you also see evidence lined all throughout god's word of a good kingdom better kingdom it's god's abijah conquers in the name of the kingdom of the lord and when daniel is raised out of the lion's den in daniel chapter 6 darius the mead he makes this proclamation in verse 26 he says i make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before the god of daniel For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of lions. I don't know that Darius really understood all that he proclaimed there. Uh, He was speaking prophetically and the Lord just kind of helped him along to get it all exactly right. But he is exactly true his kingdom will have no end and it shall never be destroyed there's other authors of scripture they double down on this idea of the kingdom of god isaiah and david they poetically write under the inspiration of the holy spirit beautifully about the kingdom of god that he rules over all others that it has no end that he is cleansed, that he is clothed in majesty Time after time throughout the Old Testament, the people of God are pointed to this thing, nebulous idea in many respects, of the kingdom of God. And it's presented all throughout the Old Testament as something that's soon coming, especially in the books of Micah and Haggai. The people of God, particularly in Israel, they began thinking that this idea of the kingdom of God mentioned sporadically throughout the prophets, it must be a promise about Israel rising to power again. So they looked with eager expectation to be back on top again, just like their fathers and fathers and fathers had been in the days of David. But then the New Testament hits And if you thought the Old Testament talked a lot about the kingdom of God, you better hold on, because Jesus spoke a lot about the kingdom of God. Over 100 times, mostly spoken by Jesus himself, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is evoked. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, we could have a debate about this afterwards. Please don't debate me about this afterwards. I think this is one and the same. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven... At the height of his ministry, Jesus had amassed thousands of people, Jews and Gentiles. They believed that he was going to ascend to power, take on Rome, depose the Pharisees' rule, and name himself the leader of the kingdom of God. These followers, they couldn't understand any idea of the kingdom of God apart from an actual throne with with tangible territory. Even though Jesus addressed these issues head on multiple times, it just never really sunk in with them. We could literally be here all week if we were to break down the over 100 times that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. So I whittled it down to three characteristics this morning by way of introducing what the kingdom of God is. These are three facts about the kingdom of God that Jesus affirmed most often. I want you to keep in mind That when people of his time heard kingdom, they had real life examples of kings ruling and reigning over property and people with specific borders. But when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, he told his disciples the kingdom of God is within. The kingdom of God is within. So there's a group of pharisees who approached jesus one day and they asked him this same old tired question that jesus had answered about a dozen times already in his ministry that we've recorded or that's been recorded for us in god's word they ask him when will the kingdom of god come when when will you ascend to power? If you are the Messiah, if you're the Christ as you preach, when's it all going to take place? When's coronation day? i got to clear my calendar. When will the kingdom of God come? This time in particular, Jesus got a little inventive with his answer. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God Does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Look at that phrase the kingdom of God does not come with observation. We've got a few land surveyors in our church here this morning. They are of no use to the kingdom of God. Sorry, Jeff. Sorry, (laughs) Steve. You guys, you are of use to the kingdom of God, but your land surveying efforts are not. You cannot drop a pin to outline where the kingdom of God is marked. You can't point to that corner of the property. You can't say that. This right there, it is not seen by observation. You cannot say, see here and here and here and here. This is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, is within you. Or as the ESV translates it, it is in the midst of you. If you were to look at the history of kingdoms throughout the world, there are three that would probably jump to the forefront of your mind pretty quickly because of just their sheer size. The Mongol Empire, probably the one that most of us are not as familiar with, it comes in the 13th century. It's recognized as the largest empire in history when we talk about contiguous landmass. It spanned 9.3 Million square miles at its zenith, all in one centralized location. That is astounding. However, Britain and Russia's empires, respectively, they are the largest when you look at landmass that includes colonies and islands and different things like that. In fact, you realize that there was a point around the turn of the 20th century that over 43% of the world was under either Britain or Russia's rule. That's crazy. Their empires were massive. It's hard for me to wrap my head around. That's how we mark and distinguish and measure kingdoms. We pull out the compasses and the clinometers. We drop a pin there. We draw a line there. We sketch the border in that direction. Kingdoms, in our minds, they have borders. It's not so with the kingdom of God. And I'm so thankful. I want you to think about the darkest, most spiritually oppressive place that you can. And history tells us that even there, the kingdom of God resides. Could we go to Genesis? And we could zone in, we could hone in on Joseph, who has been thrown into an Egyptian prison for crimes that he didn't commit. It is dark and oppressive. Nobody is wanting or longing to serve God except Joseph. And even in the prison in Egypt millennia ago, there is the kingdom of God. We could go to, as I said earlier, Daniel chapter 6, where in the midst of this disgusting, dank, dark lion's den, Daniel has been thrown down, and I just imagine that there is some rot and disgusting things going on in this lion's den, this place of no hope where people are sent to be torn to shreds by wild animals. There, the kingdom of God. We could turn the clock up really fast. We could go to the Nazi concentration camps of the 30s and the 40s. We could go to the closed borders of North Korea today, and God's kingdom is there because there are believers there in recent years i don't know that we could think of a a more dark place after 9-11 than afghanistan with the country being ruled by terrorist leaders responsible for planning the attack on the world trade centers the u.s recalled all of its citizens very quickly after the attacks saying it was unsafe that war would be beginning very shortly But there was a Free Will Baptist missionary, and more importantly, Kingdom of God ambassador by the name of John Weaver, who decided to stay and continue to minister. Imagine the Kingdom of God right there in Taliban territory. At the darkest place, the Kingdom of God. Christian, the Kingdom of God is wherever you are. Are. It's within, but that doesn't mean that it's supposed to be covert or constrained. In fact, it must be lived out, it must be acted upon. There was an old preacher by the name of S.D. Gordon. He used to work in the YMCA in the early 1900s, and he would often, in his preaching, talk about two thrones. I've shared this with you recently, but it's just too good to not mention it again. He said once In every heart there's a throne. When self is on the throne, Christ is on the cross. When Christ is on the throne, self is on the cross. There are two kingdoms. If you're on the throne, Christ is on the cross. If Christ is on the throne, you, kingdom of man, self, you are on the cross. The kingdom of God is within, but it must be lived out. You cannot serve two masters. Either Christ rules or man reigns. It is far better to allow Jesus full authority in your life because only He can turn your life right side up. In fact, that's the second attribute that Jesus taught most often about the kingdom of God. Jesus was known for his miracles, but almost as equally so, he was known for his parables. And it's here that he taught about the kingdom of God in its richest form. These are stories of common everyday items which had a spiritual meaning attached to them, and that often confounded their hearers. It wasn't because they were difficult to understand per se, but usually it was because the kingdom of God worked so differently from what we're used to. In a particular series of parables, Jesus explained that the kingdom of heaven was like a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. In the first, there's a picture of a shepherd who keeps 100 sheep and he can't find one. So this good shepherd, he does the unthinkable. He leaves 99 sheep in order to go after the erring one. That's the kingdom of God. In the second parable, there's a woman who's lost one of her ten coins. These coins probably had special significance, most likely being part of her dowry. Though she has nine coins already, she stops at nothing. The language of Scripture is that she disarranges and turns her house upside down in order to find the coin. And when she does, there is great rejoicing over one little coin. That's the kingdom of God. Of God. But in that final parable of this series, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son who brashly sticks out his hand towards his father and asks him, nay, commands his dad, give me my inheritance now. What does that mean? That means I don't care if you are alive or dead, I want what's coming to me now. The father gives him his portion. The boy leaves home, forsakes his country, forgets his name, joins another country, spends all his money on everything that his lustful heart desires. And then when the joyride has come to an abrupt halt with the last penny being spent, he has to go to a farmer and ask if he could slop hogs for a living in order to make do. At every turn, while Jesus is telling these parables, his listeners must be appalled specifically at this disgusting story. There's a boy who would dishonor his father. The law would tell us that boy would be worthy of death. A sinner who had drunk and done everything that he did It should have been forsaken. A Jew who would lower himself to slop hogs would have lost his standing among the people of God. But in the story, when the boy comes to himself and he runs home to ask forgiveness from his dad, the son finds his dad waiting with open arms and such is the kingdom of heaven. To the Pharisees listening on, each of these stories, they went against the natural grain of their lives. Who cares about one lost sheep? They had a low view of marriage, so who cares about going to great lengths to find this coin, this dad in this story of the prodigal son? He's just a weakling nobody. Nobody would do this. He's driven by emotions and not righteousness in their minds. How dare he accept this sinner into his own home? He ought to have tossed the boy aside. But that's the natural of order, that's the natural order of things, but God's kingdom is anything but natural. It takes the upside-down world that we think is normal and he turns it right side up as to how things ought to work in his kingdom. What you expect is not what you get from the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God Lost people are given grace in the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit obtain, the mourned are comforted, the the meek rule, the hungry are filled, the merciful receive mercy, the pure in heart they see God. The peacemakers, they are God's sons, and the persecuted ones in the kingdom of God, what do they do? They rejoice. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. The ones who seek prominence will be demoted to sitting on the stool in the corner. The ones who wait for everyone else to go in front of them. They will rule at the feast as the guest of honor. The kingdom of God is different from the kingdom of man in every single aspect. Jesus says that whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. The know-it-alls will find out that they know nothing. And those whose faith is childlike, they will be the greatest in the kingdom, Scripture teaches us. The world will tell you that the love of money is good for a healthy economy. Christ tells us that it is the root of all kinds of evil. Don't measure success by the world's tape measure. Do not look at the world's standard and this kingdom of man to gain any notoriety or reward. By the kingdom of man's standard, Jesus of Nazareth was just some misunderstood, simpleton madman who crossed the wrong people, who made a wrong friend in Judas Iscariot and wound, him, and wound himself being put on a cross and crucified. But the kingdom of God, the cross is so very different in the kingdom of God. It celebrates the death, the burial, the resurrection of the one and only God-man. It is the seminal masterpiece of all history. What the kingdom of man has rejected as nonsense and foolishness has become, Scripture teaches us, the chief cornerstone of the kingdom of heaven. The world is so messed up. We feel this on the regular. We are calling for the kingdom of man is calling everything that is right wrong and everything sinful ought to be celebrated. This world, this kingdom of man, is broken. Upside down. Do not listen to the pundits of the kingdom of man. They are deceived and they are lying to you. Only Christ and His kingdom can make all of life make sense and turn it right side up. But when? When? I've got about three of you still with me this morning. (laughs) When will the kingdom of God come? That's the question Jesus gets asked the most about. When's all this going to take place? You know, if you study history, which I know some of you hate, by each empire or kingdom, there's a start date and there's an end date, right? Usually the bold print, you don't have to read the whole book, you just look for the bold print for the quiz. You all with me? Okay, sorry, it's... Summertime, so some of y'all aren't even thinking about all that. Well, what about the kingdom of God? What are the dates of the kingdom of God? Well, that's what's so interesting about the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is now, but not yet. The kingdom of God is now, but not yet. Multiple times Jesus preached that the kingdom of God is at hand. He said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. So the people who had a fundamental misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God was, they began to think, oh, Jesus is going to make a move on Rome. Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. In fact, I think you can read the entire triumphal entry narrative through this lens. The Jews are convinced that Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem and keep riding all the way to Rome. He was going to set up his kingdom now. So they were confused every time he said one of those upside-down statements, especially when he said stuff like, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight for me. It fooled the best of people. Even the disciples, they thought they had a grasp on what the kingdom of God was. (laughs) They were so wrong. If you got your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 6, just to wake some of you up this morning. I know it's warm. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Let me give you a little bit of context as to what's going on in Acts chapter 1 at this time. Friends, this is after Jesus has spent three and a half years of his life pouring into these disciples. <laughs> they have they've got their masters essentially in following Jesus. He has spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three and a half years with them. That means they have sat under thousands of sermons. They have heard hundreds of parables. They have experienced millions of miracles. This is after the crucifixion. This is after the resurrection. This is in this in-between time, 40 days while Jesus resurrects from the grave until he is going to ascend into heaven look at acts chapter 1 verse 6 and look at this mind boggling question that they come to Jesus with when they had come together the disciples asked Jesus saying lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to israel and the greek there's this really weird phrase where Jesus says, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's not there, I'm just kidding. I have known y'all how long? <laughs> I have told you this how many times? I have gone to the cross, been to the tomb, I'm heading to heaven. This is the last question you're gonna ask me? When will the kingdom of God, will, you, will the kingdom of God start now? Are you kidding me? No, none of that's in the text. It should be. I, I think there's like this holy ugh from Jesus though. He says to them in verse seven, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. The best of people, the closest to Jesus, they had a fundamental misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is now but not yet. Similar to when Jesus said that the kingdom of God is within, which means that the kingdom of God has no borders. The kingdom of God is now but not yet, and that means that it's under no time restraints. There is no beginning date, and there is no ending date to the kingdom of God. The longest unimpeded empire is Japan's. It's over 1,700 years. The most powerful empires on earth throughout history, they've averaged out to pretty much rule for 600 years that is a long time, especially when you see that in reference to Americans being babies in the world seen for the most part. Those span dozens of generations, but that does not hold a candle to the kingdom of God. It has been ongoing for millennia. Isaiah says, "Of His government, there shall be no end." So the disciples, they come to Jesus one day and they ask him, "Lord, will you teach us to pray?" And he makes the kingdom of God, not the heart, but a very significant portion of the prayer. And he responds with, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, this phrase, thy kingdom come. What does it mean to pray, thy kingdom come? Three things. Number one, we are declaring that we are good citizens of a heavenly kingdom and we must obey its king over any other. We are claiming when we say thy kingdom come, I am a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. But more so than that, Paul will tell us later in his letters that we're not just citizens of a heavenly kingdom, citizens of God's kingdom. We are also ambassadors for God's kingdom. We are those who go to make others a part of this kingdom so that we can encourage them to worship God as the one who is the supreme ruler. We are ambassadors, sent ones to go into enemy territory and win those and bring them back to himself. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are ambassadors for the kingdom of God. But we are, I think, in the model prayer, lobbyists for the kingdom of God. But we don't like lobbyists in America today. We only like the lobbyists that we like in America today, I should say. We approach the regimes of this earthly kingdom with petitions to make this kingdom more like God's kingdom. We proclaim Jesus is Lord no matter who's in the White House, the Capitol or City Hall. We declare that everyone join us and declare their allegiance to our King. We believe that we that what we share in Christ is greater than any differences we might have. The kingdom of God has no flag, no specific language, no boundary, no hierarchy save Christ supreme. Here on earth, we've got the legislative, executive, ex- executive and judicial branch, but in the kingdom of God he alone proclaims and forces and judges the nations here we have a representative form of government but in the kingdom of God each has a personal relationship with his creator king here we've got elections in the kingdom of God he can never be dethroned nor voted into office here we focus on the individual and personal liberty but in the kingdom of God I don't own a thing that house that car those girls my family they are not mine they are all gods he is sovereign over them all So when I pray, thy kingdom come, I am signing a declaration of absolute, all-encompassing, never-ending, no-holds-barred, untethered, unrestricted, total dependence upon God who is in rightful rule and authority and reign over my life. That is what we mean when we pray, thy kingdom come. Christian, it means that we pray that God's kingdom be forever expanding. It is within, but it is meant to be lived out. We pray that God's kingdom will right all wrongs, that it will take this twisted and upside-down world and turn it for His purposes and for His glory. When we pray God's kingdom come in my life and in our world is what we mean. Lord, You rule You reign right here and in this community. You say, Corey, I thought you already said, you already read Scripture that told us that the kingdom of God has come. So why are we to pray, thy kingdom come? If it's already come, what's the point of praying, thy kingdom come? Can I remind you that it is now, but it is not yet. This is common throughout Scripture and throughout church history. I have dozens of times encouraged you to read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I think two of you have taken me up on that. Bunyan tells the story, it's a parable, of Christian who leaves the city of destruction and he starts heading towards the celestial city. Christian is God's. The kingdom of God is within but it is coming in the celestial city. There's a, name, there's a man by the name of Augustine of Hippo. He's looking around him and Rome is crumbling around. The Roman Empire is just It is disheveled. It is falling. And Christians, though they had been terrorized by Rome, they have questions about, so what does it mean now for this earthly government to crumble? And Augustine writes, his masterpiece called The City of God. And in it, he tells us that we have a dual citizenship. What that means for the majority of us in this room here today is that you are a citizen of the United States of America, but you also have a dual citizenship in the kingdom of God. You are pilgrims and sojourners in this world. When you come to Christ, you receive the kingdom. It is now, but it is not yet. And by that, I mean that there are still places in this world who have not recognized Him as the Lord of their life. We are citizens, pilgrims, sojourners going on. But the day of ultimate kingdom of God, it will come, and it will be more than we can ever imagine John tries to describe it my word he uses every word and the language that he could grasp to describe what the kingdom of God would look like and even through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit John still says I has not seen nor ear heard you cannot comprehend what the kingdom of God will one day look like It comes to this fever pitch in Revelation chapter eleven verse fifteen, where John writes that there's this angel who sounds or he boisterously makes a noise, and there were loud voices in heaven all saying that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever all the brokenness will be made new all the wrongs will be righted the 24 elders, they up ap- set before God on their thrones. They fell on their faces and they worshiped God saying in verse 17, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you've taken your great power and you have reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants and the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy destroy those who destroy the earth. The kingdom of heaven is now, but not yet. Christian. He is coming again. One day, every knee will bow. One day, every tongue will confess. The kingdom of God, for now, is within. The kingdom of God is made to be lived out. The kingdom of God has no time stamp or beginning or ending. The kingdom of God is now, but it is yet to come. So when we pray, Thy kingdom come we relinquish all authority. We are not just saying you're a good king. We're giving up all of our rights. That's why we can say, your will be done. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.